2: Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a Pulitzer Prize-winning American investigative journalist. Born in New York City, he earned his degree in philosophy at the age of just 15. While still a teenager, he also served as a UNICEF spokesperson for youth, advocating for children and women caught up in the Darfur crisis in Sudan. In 2009, at 22 years old, he became a special advisor to the Obama administration, then a Rhodes Scholar, earning his PhD in political science at Magdalen College, Oxford. It was his work detailing the allegations of sexual misconduct against the movie mogul Harvey Weinstein, published in The New Yorker, that situated my guest in the centre of the global spotlight, however. His reporting has had profound effects, both within the film industry and further afield. And yet, through all of this, video games have been a constant. I love video games, he told the New York Times in 2021. Big nerd here. Welcome, Ronan Farrow.
1: Hey, Simon. A long-time listener, first-time caller. It's, it's, uh, it's not literally listener, <laughs> I'm thinking of your articles,
2: but uh, it's nice to... Talk to someone who's so thoughtful about the medium. That's very kind of you to say. So, I mean, Rona, you are you're an unusually accomplished person. I would say that intro could probably have been many times longer and still only covered some of what you've achieved in your young life. Um, some people might wonder how you've uh, had the time to fit video games into that high achieving lifestyle. Well, I think,
1: as with so many things, uh, video games became a deep love in part as an act of of rebellion against rules barring video games in the house. I I grew up in such a kind of um, square household in some ways, chaotic and crazy and colorful in other ways. But, but, you know, my mom was, was a real stickler for, like, you start with classical music... (laughs) <laughs> no rock and roll until you really understand the historical roots that uh that preceded that oh wow and and then you know like y- you do your russian novels uh before you get to super mario brothers <laughs> uh so so i i became a, a really dreadful snob at an early age uh uh very well versed in in all the arguments that video games are an art form you know, <laughs> capital a capital s and um and I, I don't know that I sold uh, people around me on, on that argument, but I did then get very into art games from an early point. And, mm. and I think part of that was was like a technical exigency. Because I wasn't allowed to have a console, uh, I think the agreement I finally wheedled out of my mom was that when I turned 16, I could get a console, <laughs> something like that, Wow, 15 or 16 but but up until then uh i experienced games as a pc more literally a mac gamer and and then through emulating n64 games and super nintendo games and so forth uh so so, so the first cornerstone being computer driven rather than console driven really did shape my taste like you know at that point in time especially now it's much more uniform cuz everything's ported everywhere but on on the computer, you had things like you know Mist and um, even something like Prince of Persia is like pretty intricate compared to the platformers that predominated at the time on on consoles. So, I I got a lot more into I guess what the forebears of of modern walking simulators and puzzle games uh, as opposed to the more of the kinetic running and jumping games.
2: And were you sort of playing those computer games when you were supposed to be reading Tolstoy?
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I, I started college young, as you mentioned. Um, so I was like fully in an academic phase where I needed to be more focused on school than other people my age. And yet I was like staying up until, you know, 4 a.m. before rolling out of bed to run to class playing, you know, Diablo 2. <laughs> <laughs> Le- learning about uh, life and cruelty by having people... You know, scam me out of my stones of Jordan. That's the cornerstone of the Diablo 2 economy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> are there any listeners out there who are familiar? I read. Um, so one of the first times I I personally learned that you you played video games was when you did a you, you posted something on social media. This is a few years ago. There was a post about Animal Crossing: Wild World. I don't know if you remember this. I but do. You yeah. were referring to a character in that game called. Um, Sable, the seamstress, who is like an elderly hedgehog, I think, and she's uh, she. If, if you sort of talk to her a few times, she eventually opens up and tells you the story about Tom Nook, who's the monopolist raccoon in the Animal Crossing world. And you wrote, and she tells you all about how you know before he was a, a an evil capitalist, she used to you know. She used to have some good times with him and all that. And you you, you wrote that uh, this little vignette about a woman's heartbreak is buried in a game that's mostly about catching bugs. You only hear it if you're patient and persistent and give her a lot of space to open up. Really lovely post. And I think the implication was that, uh, you know, this is maybe how you approach your sources. Um, I'm not suggesting that Harvey Weinstein's downfall was aided by this rather arcane bit of Animal Crossing backstory, uh, but also was it?
1: Uh, I mean, I think I've probably in in some recess of my mind was aware of the link between that and uh, that kind of thing of of dialogue trees in sort of more cerebral narrative games and what I do for a living, which does involve a lot of like patient, careful excavating of stories. You know, games are, are a medium that can do that kind of excavation driven almost archaeological storytelling differently and perhaps better than books or movies so I think yeah, you know, games that really lean on environmental storytelling like you know the Mist series where you have like a whole, whole world and body of art direction that is supposed to teach you about a character's psychology I mean that was in a very simplistic form in that the first game in that series and they then iterated on that um et- and then also things like, you know, in, in the present day, uh, a lot of FromSoft's work, which, you know, can be arcane as hell to, <laughs> to piece together. Um, and like, uh, sometimes, who knows if it all even hangs together once you actually do watch every Vati Vidya plot explainer. <laughs> but but they, they do a tremendous job of building atmosphere and, and even some character, you know, j- mm-hmm. just through stuff you pick up with uh, careful observation. So so yeah, I think Animal Crossing, uh, low key being like a stunning piece of character-driven writing under the <laughs> surface, is totally fascinating to me, and I really love that kind of storytelling. I think it's a pleasure that you you only really get in video games.
2: So, Ronan, the format of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you want to put on your ideal games machine, and uh, you've chosen your first game is a a computer a computer game title as we might expect from from what you said there. Uh, from 1997 can you tell us what is this game and why did you love it
1: i i uh, i'm otherwise maybe going to struggle to remember how i ranked things because i had i had so much trouble uh, choosing i think we're going chronologically and i think you're talking about ribbon which is apropos of what i just mentioned <laughs> So, so, so ribbon was really foundational to me in a lot of ways. It came right at the right time for that love of computer games and and puzzle adventure narrative games that we just talked about to to kind of burgeon and mature. And it, it, it came at the tail end of this giant hype cycle because at the time missed it, its predecessor. Uh, was you know the best-selling computer game of all time and it, it had really mainstreamed the adoption of of cd-rom drives i think it's pretty commonly thought that it was a, it was a big building block of, for that technology uh and it was doing things that you could only do with that technology and you needed a lot of storage for these very pretty images uh and then they they disappeared for four years and made this like you know no budgetary limitations sequel and it's it's often really fun in any medium to witness people coming off of the back of a success like that right right uh, auteurs in particular and this one was kind of an auteur driven thing right the famously the mist games were made by these two brothers in Spokane Washington and like you know they were on the cover of wire and they were kind of computer game folk heroes for a brief moment there and um, I actually recently did a voice acting role in a game that they produced just because really? I love their stuff so much that oh, I think cool. they knew that if they like slid into the DMs and said, hey, we're, we've got this experimental VR game. It was it was a VR game directed not by, by Rand Miller, he was a producer on it, but by uh, the uh, the couple that made That Dragon Cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I had I really admired that game too, so I, I did this uh, voice acting role for them, <laughs> uh, which was a bit of things coming full circle because I had spent my childhood immersed in Cyan's games. Uh, this company uh, founded by these brothers and and I do just love these creative moments where someone comes off the back of a giant success that it you know they, they're dealing with the pressure of is it going to be lightning in a bottle? and they just go all out creatively without limitation. Mm-hmm. And, and that can backfire horribly. People can get unrestrained and undisciplined in, in ways that don't work creatively. But Riven is a game that's really interesting because it doesn't pander at all to the audience. And it did, a, I think, a very futuristic thing design-wise. It's not a, a, a game world where you encounter puzzles in it, like the original Myst or especially something like The Witness, which Jonathan Blow often cites <laughs> Myst as being big inspiration. So those games are very kind of interrelated. But, but those, are, those are all games where you ha- kind of have discrete puzzles and then you have the world and the, the plot. Riven really made the plot, the puzzles, and the the world itself And the characters all kind of one thing, like you're exploring one Uh big uh, non-linear, probably more what you'd call like a kind of like a Metroidvania style hub world that you're gradually pushing out into and accessing more areas of in all directions, um, rather than a true open world. But it it's pretty giant to this day, and there's never a moment where you're kind of self-consciously in a puzzle it it really is all the basic framework is it's going kind of, it's a plot about colonialism and daddy issues so like of course i love the plot <laughs> and the it, it really it really is like the the puzzles and challenges you encounter feel like an organic extension of this character that's sort of ruling this world and you're like going through his underwear drawer essentially and reading his journals and stuff to to really get a deep uh, sense of character uh. portraiture and, and and the other thing it does which is interesting is it's kind. Of, the whole game is kind of like two or three puzzles. And I think I put on mm-hmm. this list Outer Wilds, uh, which we'll get to later since we're going chronologically, which is really interesting to me because it's one of the few games that I, I have no idea if the Outer Wilds guys like, actually consciously emulated the tradition that, that Mist built. But Riven and Outer Wilds really do a very similar and very unusual thing, which is like the whole world is just a couple of big puzzles. And the puzzles are very... Right, right narrative driven and i just uh-huh. i think that's incredible and it, and it makes the design hold up so well because it's so not gaming uh-huh. and and props to them because a, a lot of the scuttle i mean i think it sold very well at the time but a lot of the scuttlebutt around it at the time was like it's just too hard it's just too they really like they uh-huh. flop you in a world the storytelling is all very oblique and there's no hand holding at all you just kind of wander and study the environment and culture until you sincerely have enough knowledge accumulated to advance further. It's these are like knowledge-based Metroidvanias, yeah. which I think is an underexplored uh, tradition in game design.
2: Very interesting. Yeah, they. I think people can bounce off them because, like you say, there's no you don't see there's not like characters running around and things like that, mm-hmm. and um, it's all sort of <laughs> it's uh, they're quite sterile. Is maybe the wrong word, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's, a sort of sterile feel to them and you have to put a lot of work in yourself it strikes me that's not too dissimilar from some of the work you do you do now in your real life sort of piecing together you've got these very large complex puzzles that you're trying to work through with few handholds on the way
1: yeah i hadn't thought of it quite in those terms but it it is true that like it's it's the least shocking thing right that an investigative reporter is super into investigative video games
2: (laughs) So um let's come back to to your story there. You said that your your mum was pretty anti video games, but she said you could get one when you were sixteen. Was she was she true to her word?
1: She was. So what did you get? I, I got a GameCube. GameCube, lovely. <laughs> GameCube was my inaugural. I had, as I mentioned, been, been emulating uh N sixty four games for, for years prior to that. So I had gotten acquainted with and uh. Super Nintendo games before that. So so I kind of I, I knew and loved like the Zelda canon, for instance. Uh, I, I think I always tended to gravitate on the console side, maybe because of those PC gaming roots uh, or math gaming roots, t- towards uh, either more cerebral or, or at least more exploration-driven yeah. games. Like, I'm not really an old-school gamer. I, I don't particularly enjoy the true arcade model of, like, you're running a level over and over again to get higher points and improve your technique. I almost never respond deeply to that. I-, I respond deeply to games that have a component of that that supports something else. Like, I came really close to putting Returnal mm-hmm. on this list because yeah. I think it's it's one of the most extraordinary games that I've played in years and years. I think the storytelling is so sophisticated and personal and intimate, and the fact that it's anchored by a you know middle aged woman right. protagonist is incredible. Um, although boy is she fit as a fiddle, um, <laughs> for for any it's any right. gender, that, that lady like does not skip leg day. <laughs> she she is not. running and jumping and boosting. <laughs> and, and and that's obviously a very kind of skill driven game where you have to have complete focus and like how you map the controls and what every finger is doing simultaneously is very very important. But but the things that make me love that game are that. You know, the, the ways in which the fluid, um, skill-driven gameplay supports exploration, which feels meaningful because of the Metroidvania component, and plot, which is quite sophisticated in that case, um, in my view. Um, and also, uh, you know, in that case, it's, it's a social game. So things like Diablo or, like, I love, you know, Smash Brothers. That was kind of a, a fixture of my childhood once I got that GameCube. Uh, those games have a, another function, which is they really do facilitate camaraderie and like good times with, with hopefully good people uh and and if anyone out there has returnal and hasn't cracked open the co-op it's one of the most sensational co-op modes i've ever played it's crazy that this super super dense sophisticated game is like completely yeah right. co-opable all the way through um and it's it's really a blast to run someone through it uh so so yeah all to all to say and i i typically not as much a kind of skill-based arcadey gamer. Uh-huh. Uh, and I got my GameCube, and of course was like much more into the tradition of like Zelda and the 3D yeah. Mario's, you know, 64 through through Odyssey, as opposed to the kind of Mario Brothers series through Mario World through Galaxy, where it's more you're like going down a linear corridor and and trying to get your yeah, technique yeah, yeah. better.
2: Yeah, and the uh, GameCube had uh, Wind Waker on it, the Zelda. Lovely cell shaded Wind Waco, which was uh-huh. and technically
1: Twilight Princess Right. I actually played the the GameCube version where they mirrored the world uh because the Oh well I guess the GameCube ver the, the Wii version they mirrored it and made Linke it- a righty, uh to the consternation of lore buffs. But I think I played the GameCube version, which was still the you know as artistically intended left hand for
2: sure. <laughs> amazing I don't know if it i mean for me it during my childhood there were definitely times when when games were were a refuge I suppose somewhere so I sort of retreated i, I you know I don't know much about your childhood, but I know that you had lots of siblings because your your mum adopted lots and I uh-huh. guess that was happening when you were that age did did video games fulfill that function for you were they sort of a a place that you could uh, find a bit of peace and quiet in
1: that's interesting uh-huh. I mean. You know, you're probably as capable as of armchair psychologizing me as as I am myself. I, uh, it sounds pretty plausible. You know, and my childhood was in some ways a, a you know a crucible of uh, a fair amount of turmoil and and trauma. Also, some some really wonderful opportunity and and uh, a lot of love and stuff. Uh, so I tend to focus on the the good oh, in sure. it as much yeah. as possible. But there's definitely also tough stuff to uh, you know excavate over a lifetime of therapy and. I, well, I suppose all of our, our choices on how we spend time as kids are, are informed by that kind of refuge-seeking, right? Unless you're of course, one yeah. of the mythical people that had a well-adjusted childhood, <laughs> which I, I wish for you and everyone else. I, I I definitely consciously experienced games just more as like a, a joyous thing that felt it artistically and creatively and um, socially enriching. You know, I, I really, I was, I was very fascinated by the ways in which the medium felt different from, from other artistic <laughs> and creative mediums and the kind of the merger of some qualities of an art form and some qualities of a toy a- and the technological component, which I was always sort of nerdily drawn to. I mean, you know, I watched like every hour long digital foundry oh, you like video on <laughs> ray tracing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm that guy. I'm really like deeply annoying to play games with because I just want to like sort of stop and look at the like you know materials work, <laughs> like, look at the shaders.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, with that in mind, let's why don't we come to your second choice here, which is from the year 2000s, a uh, uh, game that they called an immersive sim. Can you can you tell us about this?
1: Oh yeah, I mean this is one of the the daddies of the immersive sim genre. I picked Deus Ex. There's a running joke on like nerd, you know, corners of, of Reddit, uh, that every time someone mentions Deus Ex, someone someone reinstalls it somewhere in the world. right. And, right. and it is, like, it's just it's a game that has that quality and, and and the design blueprint of that game is so incredibly forward-looking. I think it has that in common with with Rhythm, where they kind of did things years before other people were doing them in ways that when they show up now, are still <laughs> impressive to me. So, so you know, the fact that Deus Ex really embraces this level design philosophy that I guess came from Warren Spector, and he's talked about it a lot publicly. Uh, God, you should get him on this podcast. I find that guy fascinating. But you know, he, he's he's embraced this idea that you can make a single city block-sized level more interesting than you know the biggest open world by by dint of density of detail and that's the design philosophy i tend to resonate with most deeply when i encounter it in games i you know i i really want to feel meaningful story and art development and kind of level design that encourages exploration in an intricate way every minute that i'm experiencing an inch of game world so i tend to specifically not respond to open worlds as much breath of the wild uh I think, broke that mold a little for me because it actually, it feels, again, I have no idea whether this is a tradition that, you know, was, like, actually discussed consciously at Nintendo, or they tend to, I think, do their own thing, but it it was, it's been talked about that it has a lot of traits of the immersive sim genre, so the kind of deus ex principle of, like, maybe you're finding a vent and sneaking in, or maybe you're stacking boxes, and kind of using the f- physics engine to get around a problem, or maybe you're, you know, using this combat technique, that combat technique. Th- that's very in the bones of Breath of the Wild and and sort of why I I find the open world in that game much more tolerable, because it's much more a playground for <laughs> active engagement um, and exploration. But to this day, I don't know that anyone has done that better than the original Deus Ex. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy some of the reboot entries in that series, but they're all kind of... Unable to restrain themselves from pandering a little too much, um, and maybe just through the way the economics of pretty realistic-looking games have evolved, aren't really capable, it seems, of that scope of ambition. Uh, so they feel a little more on the rails, a little more handholding. Yeah, but that it's it's re- exhilarating. I remember as a as a teenager, like doing that first the Liberty Island opening level of, of Deus Ex like over and over and over again in a million different ways and uh, uh, the fact that it's a game where you can still discover you know, 20 years later like, oh, there's a snippet of dialogue that reflects this thing that you might have done or not in the first five uh, minutes of the game and it only shows up 20 hours later.
2: Yeah, one that you that incredible game. Yeah, and I think I think you're, you're right to draw a link between that and Breath of the Wild because they both share this, they've got some very low-level rules which then, like you say, with the physics engine and things like that, which which then just allow the player to devise their own solutions in ways that perhaps hadn't been, you know, foreseen by the designers. Which makes you feel special and clever and all of that good stuff as well. So
1: it creates a much more active relationship with the game, right? And and you know, the the antithesis of that is like I much respect to you know the many talented artists that that work on these games, but i tend to really bounce off of like the super hand-holdy corridor games like i can't tell you how many times i played the first five hours of that was it 2016 or 2018 um god of war reboot mm-hmm. right and it's such a collection of kind of hand-holding big budget tropes like the the principle is we want your engagement with this game to be as frictionless as possible Which in function, you know, so it's everything from, like, aggressive giant prompts, the camera tilting against your will towards, like, you walk into a room, it ain't rivet, you know, it's not, it's not like complicated character-driven puzzles, you walk it, you're in a little narrow corridor, you walk into one room and then another, you kill three monsters, and then before you can explore it all... You know, the sidekick character is like, look, a button. You better throw your ass at it. <laughs> and it's like every room is like that. Right. And it's the most popular thing ever. You know, it won like all these Game of the Year awards. So so there is a really different design tradition that people just love. Uh, and and they <laughs> they really like to not be challenged. Um, I feel like there's someone out there who's like really going to be a defender of that series <laughs> and going to get super mad at me for this and say like it's actually so deep and sophisticated and maybe it is but that element of unsophistication in it is such a turn off for me Listen. every time and I think like I can tolerate that sometimes if a game's other qualities are engaging enough or outside the box of what's expected enough that I still feel that like even if there are pandery elements at the framework and it ha- holds your hand a lot, I still feel that kind of electric charge of vision. Like, I do, you know, the, the God of War reboots we're talking about are are obviously uh, really, really consciously emulating Naughty Dog's games. <laughs> but, like, the thing is, Naughty Dog's games do try to do, anyway, uncomfortable things with storytelling. They try to put you outside of your comfort zone a little. And, and the actual combat, when you go through that corridor of linear rooms at least tries as hard as it can around the margins of that the hand holding linear framework to to give you some more sandboxy elements. (laughs) So yeah, so I, I love I love the Deus Ex framework. I really lament the fact that doing that requires so much kind of time and effort and money and attention to detail and that there seems to be pretty minimal economic incentives for that.
2: Yeah, although although to be fair, I think, you know, the God of War style of naughty dog way is expensive as well. So it's oh. just where you're putting your money. Massively, isn't it? massively. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, it's expensive, but the difference is there is massive economic incentive for it. It's the, it's <laughs> right. the AAA template of the mm. moment. Uh, the other, you know, the kind of Deus Ex design principle seems to be uh, both expensive and like broadly unpalatable to people <laughs> commercially. But I don't, you know, I, I wonder, like, yeah maybe maybe just always i was kind of gonna go down the rabbit hole of what does what a like a giant hit that mainstreams that genre look like but mm. i don't know it might be that like the reason that people love that genre is because it's a little um like fussy and intimidating yeah that's part of the pleasure that you can't take out of it
2: yeah it's for an audience who liked who likes to tinker and all of that sort of thing which isn't everyone yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good. While you were ranting about God of War, Ronan, I thought if if ever you uh, launched a YouTube channel, you you would have such a toxic comment section. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god.
1: I mean, the thing is, like, I really admire the arc direction and, you know, the combat, while, while sort of very easy, does seem, like, very mechanically satisfying. Like, they clearly focus the hell, test the hell out of these games. Hmm. And so I, I freely admit, uh, and great commenters, that, like, I may just not, in my several run-throughs of the first five hours of that <laughs> reboot, I might not have given it a fair shake yet. And maybe I need to try Ragnarok and it, like, changes that a little bit.
2: It's fine to like different things, though, you know? And it's, it's fine it's, to like different things. Yeah. I respect
1: I respect that. It's just it's less my thing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: so um so you you are you're like obviously motivated by keen sense of justice you know in your work as a humanitarian and a lawyer and a, and a journalist as well where where did that come from do you think um
1: probably from several different places i mean i was very fortunate to be raised by uh, a single mom who had a really strong spirit of public service um so you know as you mentioned she she adopted a bunch of my siblings and and from really tough backgrounds at that. Uh, And that gave me a sense of perspective. Uh, You know, it's not easy coming from a background of uh, abuse or or, uh, sincere, uh, deep poverty, and then, you know, really trying to wrestle with the emotional consequences and the long shadow that that cast. And I got to see a lot of very strong people go through versions of that journey from very different backgrounds. So I think it did, it engendered a, awareness of my privilege and desire to uh to give back uh the, there was also a kind of background hum of just catholic guilt oh,
2: right you know, or
1: like like calvinist work ethic that i don't i don't even really know where it comes from because my mom was like you know she went through a hippie phase and stuff and my family you know my grandmother was like very catholic but also like very boozy and fun um but somehow I wound up with a bit of a kind of hair shirt, like any five-minute block of time in which you're not actively trying to like help someone, you're an absolute moral failure. And I'm I'm trying to unwind that a little bit. Right, right. Have a little balance in my life because it, <laughs> it, was, it was getting a little uh, uh, punishing emotionally over time.
2: Yeah, I can imagine, right. And th- I'm, I'm interested in that in terms of the video game lens as well because you know, video games are so often about you're presented with a world that's got a bunch of problems in it and you've got to fix those problems and there's a there's a clear set of things that you do in order to do that and that can be very comforting, of course, but also perhaps, um, you know, it, it's a little simplistic as well because that's not always how the real world works. Do you, do you think spending time in games where, where you, it, it's relatively straightforward to put right the things that are wrong has helped or, or harmed your work in this world?
1: It's a really interesting, thoughtful question. I mean, I think depending on the genre, my, my relationship with that kind of simplistic quest giving, it, it is usually pretty fraught. There are, there are some settings like in a Zelda game or something where you sort of, you excuse it and, and sometimes the writing in a game like Majora's Mask, for instance, can be sort of strong enough while embracing that framework of, of simple quest giving <laughs> and almost subverting it uh, in the way it introduces emotional nuance and and darkness into it, sometimes I can like it, but but generally my default is is to, you know, really really want that kind of quest giving to be immersed in in a more plausible framework uh, and more kind of rich character development and. Yeah, I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> yeah. I, guess I, I guess I want to replicate the the sense of cha- challenge that I live in outside of games when I'm when I'm playing a game. I'm interested. Did you ever play
2: the Phoenix Wright series?
1: You bet I did. Yeah, love love Phoenix Wright. Yeah.
2: <laughs> as as someone with a law degree from Yale, what did you think? I can tell you
1: Phoenix Wright: Ace Attorney is a completely accurate depiction of <laughs> I I don't know what. Nonsense mishmash uh, legal system because it's also I you know I played the American translation which is quite beloved by by fans. The first game had like a translator that's very lauded and it is it does do a a a good and amusingly insane job of translating this extremely Japanese script. Um, one of the consequences of, of which is it's this incredibly Japanese courtroom procedure. <laughs> Like Japanese anime fantasy courtroom procedure, and then it's suddenly it's set in in Los Angeles in, <laughs> in, the, in the American translation, um, which I find just so so funny. It's just it's it makes absolutely no sense. But yeah, that that game kind of t- tickles my my sense of the investigator yeah. in
2: in video games. Right, I, I
1: love that, and I also I'm a I'm a big fan of like you know Monty Python surrealism. Yeah. And that that game really delivers yeah. that. It's an ex- incredibly goofy game.
2: I learned, I can't remember which Phoenix Wright game it was, but there was a in one of them you had to that you'd be talking to a suspect in your investigation, and there would be a sorry. This is an aside, but you just reminded me of it. And they, yeah. they would they'd have like something that they were lying to you about, but they'd have like three little. It was represented by locks or something, and you had to find the right question to ask that would unlock the secret that they were holding back and
1: I believe the lock mechanism came in in the second. Game. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Rhoda. But I was, I was thought that was such a great way to like uh, illustrate the, you know, that that idea of like sometimes just the right question just unlock this great. Yeah. You know, obviously that's sort of the world that we operated. But you're trying to find the right thing to ask, aren't you? To unlock something interesting and enlightening. So I thought that yeah. was quite cute how they, that game did that.
1: You're absolutely right. It, it's a, a, in a way like a pr- pretty. It's a highly simplified but still pretty sophisticated reflection of the, the way just conversations and trust right.
2: building can work. <laughs> exactly. Okay, on that note, we should come to your your third game. Now, you, you've mentioned the studio behind this uh, from Software. This game's from 2015. Can you tell us about it? Uh, Bloodborne.
1: I love FromSoft. I love their storytelling. Uh, I love Bloodborne specifically. I think it's probably—I mean, it was my my starting point with Froms games, so it's perhaps uh, not surprising or or a result of bias that it's the one that I love most. But I think I'm not alone in that. You know, I, I think it's like I a think. pretty a pretty popular choice for the high point in their their canon, and you know, the the switch to it this more Victorian. Influenced world is really interesting and adds uh, a little pulse to it beyond even what they were doing with with the more kind of traditional Tolkien esque Dark Souls stuff. <laughs> and and it just it has like this perfect balance of of level design principles that they've played with across their games. It's so satisfying unlocking a, a big long shortcut way back to a distant area you were in long ago. Every time it happens in that game. I, I knew almost nothing about their games when I started playing Bloodborne, which is a, a really incredible way to go in because, wow, yeah, it was, it, they kind of, it did start its own game design tradition. You know, the Soulsborne is like a genre now. And and you don't see that a lot in any medium, that something does something totally new. I mean, it's very, it's exciting whenever you encounter it, even if it like doesn't work totally. And I think it does in, in Bloodborne's case. But, you know, like when you watch a, uh, I'm trying to think of the closest thing in other mediums. If you, you know, if you read like a Cloud Atlas, where it's like, oh, okay, we're doing something new structurally, mm. or you watch a, you know, Bong Joon Ho movie like a Parasite or something, and it's like, oh, this just switched genres three times on me. I think for me, Bloodborne left an indelible impression just because I had never experienced anything quite like it. Yeah, um, and it was very, I mean, talk about games that don't pander to the audience. <laughs> right on the original PS4 that game was like hell to play with the load times and every time you die it's like actually i think before they patched the game it was literally just like a, a black and white screen of the logo that you would look at for three minutes every time you die <laughs> <laughs> the, the death of load times is is really very exciting to me and i hope that
2: continues <laughs> yeah yeah kids don't know how could they've got it and i and i love the
1: the FromSoft kind of archaeological storytelling yeah, you know, going back to to that part of the discussion, it's it's really fun to kind of piece together what the lore is in a game like that. Uh, do I do I wish that there were like a little more kind of active engagement in the plot? Pro- probably, but you know, that's not what that game is trying to do.
2: Yeah, 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 an extraordinary game, absolutely. It
1: also it also does things by the way. <laughs> once you get me started, talking about FromSoft, I get up. It does things like that with storytelling in unexpected places all the time like you know you you wind up with these boss battles that are very like melancholic um and where there's like clearly something troubling going on story-wise and then, yeah yeah and there's like in demon souls there's the the boss where you would kind of like you fight another player and then sometimes you can get summoned into the game to play the boss uh there's all sorts of good creative stuff in there no, Sorry, yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, Cloud Atlas is a is an interesting comparison, but I think it works. It's yeah, structurally, it's doing some really really new stuff. So, what is just to ask yeah. you, if if you don't mind, just a few questions questions about the time when you were reporting on the the Weinstein stuff. I think people would be interested to just hear a bit, a bit about that. Of course, you you wrote a book, uh, Catch and Kill, which everyone should go and go and buy and read. But um, were you were you aware of um, of uh, Harvey? while well, you? Uh, but before you started working on this, you know, obviously you grew up adjacent to the world of Hollywood. And did you, had you ever met him before when when you were younger? Only
1: in passing, I think I met him at a couple of, uh, like, conference-type events. And I think I was vaguely familiar with the sort of gawker-level, like, blind items about a, like, a, not even non-consensually gropey. I think the the way it had always been framed in those anecdotes was, like, this this casting couch culture of like starlets, it perhaps in a slightly obligatory fashion, but ultimately consensually putting out for for him or whatever um, that you kind of like it was it was sort of it was a, a mm, trope right. in Hollywood that don't take off your top for Harvey Weinstein kind of fit. and and like that was out there. It was like courtly Lo- Courtney Love like warning right. young actors not to go back to his hotel room on in like red carpet interviews. I feel like there was like a, maybe a Tina Fey joke about it at some point. It was like it was around, it was, it was out there. Which is not to say I think people look at that and they're often like, "Oh well, people people knew and they covered it up." I, there was a, a smaller circle of people who either knew or should have confronted the extent of violence that was happening. But um, I, I I don't know that I subscribe to the school of thought that says like everyone who ever was aware of you know some of the contours of it or joked about it or whatever you know should be held responsible in some way I think I think uh you yeah, know there were people who knew and then there were people who really knew you were
2: you were working at nbc when you started your investigation what how did that begin did someone approach you or, or did you go looking for the story
1: uh i had written an op-ed about like the press's relationship with sexual violence in hollywood and it really touched a nerve and then i pitched uh i had stopped anchoring my daily cable show and was on the today show at the time and had an investigative series and uh, I had pitched a story about the casting couch and this kind of transactional sex culture, uh which which ultimately led me to the the Weinstein story, which became something altogether different
2: Your your first report was published by the new yorker Uh part of the reason for that is because as i understand it nbc refused to provide a platform for your reporting why do you think they did that
1: uh well it's been reported since by ken oletta and other journalists who looked into it um and nbc kind of acknowledged and, and apologized for at least some of this you know that they to you did they did they contact you directly? Well, they they issued a public apology, kind of, because Rachel Maddow said she had looked into it and and it was true that they had stopped the, attempted to stop the reporting, and then the the body of reporting I mentioned from a lot of other journalists who looked into it afterwards, Ken Aletta and his book being the example I just mentioned, showed that that they had promised Weinstein at a corporate level that they were going to kill the story and and get rid of me essentially before any of that was communicated to me. So yeah, you know, I think it's. Uh, the dry answer is it's like it's a consequence of the way these giant media companies work that when you have a news division and NBC News has you know incredible journalists at it, um, particularly at a working level behind the scenes, investigative producers, m- many of whom protested the situation we're discussing here. I mean, my my working level producer on this wonderful journalist named Rich McHugh walked rather than like acquiesce to a cover-up over it so you know the journalists are great but but the fundamental business model of a giant you know multinational corporation with a lot of different holdings that that doesn't really see the news division as a pivotal part of the bottom line uh you know it brings other benefits but you know as as long as kind of the journalistic integrity of the thing isn't the core economic ambition or concern, you know you're gonna have this rich tradition that, that stretches way back of like big big networks killing tough stories to, to acquiesce to you know powerful outside influences. And it's always disillusioning to see a, a system that that goes that way. And this was an unusual case where they they kind of had to apologize and acknowledge as much as as they were forced to. Uh, but plenty of times I think the public just never sees that. Which is unfortunate for all of us. What
2: was, it, what was it like for you to know that you had this story, and then to feel to feel the institutional rejection of your reporting in that way, without really understanding what was going on? What did you feel? Yeah, I mean, how did you feel?
1: Oh well, you know, it was a horrific tour through corporate gaslighting, I mean, to sit there and have people say over and over again, as I got more and more, you know, I had more people on the record, I had more people on the record, and every time it was like, it's just not a story, it's just not a story, no one's ever going to care about this, and, and, like, eventually, you know, you've got to stop, like, this is, this is going to harm your career, Um, which it did for, for a moment, and, and then, you know, thankfully, the public embraced this story, and, and what had happened came out, but I was in an uncomfortable position of, like, I kind of had to bet the farm on it. Which is which is less traumatic than what a lot of the people involved in the story went through, but of course, you yeah. know, has put me in a fair bit of therapy. And and unfortunately, another trait of the network news world is, is just there's a lot of kind of retaliatory smearing in the press stuff. So the moment you have that kind of a C-suite that's embattled, I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs after this. Um, so I see why it happened, but it's still like very dismaying to have to then cut through like walls and walls of just just fabrications and thank god i i wasn't like alone as a, a corporate whistleblower in that case because i had this working level producer who had seen everything seen what we had so it wasn't as easy because he wouldn't acquiesce um for them to kind of to to misrepresent what had happened but it's still very punishing to to go through that process and i appreciate that i was able to go through that in all the ways that it's bruising because I had a much higher profile, and bigger platform than most people who are in those fights. Um, So while it put me into a lot of therapy, my career was was fine and and did flourish after. But, like, I completely understand why, if you're, you know, a, a single mom working... In a small regional outlet uh, with a shrinking newsroom and you're in a similar situation, you just don't have the opportunity to maybe fight that big fight and take those knocks and kind of emerged to do more of that work like people people have to pick their battles and stories do just die Uh, but what what a luxury that we're at the new yorker Uh, the new yorker is like they you know part of that story is that they came in and saved the thing and immediately said like no it's it's a huge story let's like put all hands on deck and and so actually that's a story with a happy ending because there are still these oases in the media landscape where somehow there's like a bunch of people with integrity who who make tough decisions reflecting that
2: yeah why don't we uh why don't we come to your your fourth game then which is from may 29 and uh, you have already mentioned it a little bit earlier um but uh yeah tell us about this wonderful game space exploration okay Sp-
1: speaking of corporate <laughs> news culture outer wilds <laughs> <laughs> good segue <laughs> Wild's really, really uh, connected with me because it it is like a spiritual successor to that Riven tradition that I talked about, where you're dropped into a world without a lot of hand holding. It's a similar kind of size and non-linearity in terms of world design versus Riven, which we talked about earlier in it. And it has that, that shared ethos of, like, every puzzle is a part of the plot, and Every puzzle is really just like part of one or two big puzzles that you solve to, to beat the game. And that creates an incredible curve of knowledge-based progression where by the end you're like piecing together these grand mysteries all in one go. It's a you know a time loop-based game, as you know. Yeah. The way it uses that sort of um, looping mechanic really lays bare that sense of knowledge-based progression where like you're stumbling around in your first few runs, barely able to progress anywhere, and then by the end you're like crossing the whole solar system really, really efficiently because you've just learned so much about the world. And that I think the the storytelling in that game is incredible too. The use of music is incredible. Really brilliant soundtrack that I listen to a lot. <laughs> and like it's it's in a very Zelda-ish way. Clearly a, a game very inspired by Majora's Mass. It's uh it's a game that like connects music and and character development in a really satisfying way. I think I, I think I cried a little at the end of Outer Wilds. <laughs> I found it like a very a very yeah. um interesting and and moving testament to like the enormous loneliness of the universe but also like the shared importance of of striving for greatness and and progress. Across What's a lot this? of distance between different types of people. The the themes, um, for whatever reason with where I was in, in life at the moment that I played that game really really landed with me. Yeah,
2: it's such a it's like a elegant piece of Swiss clockwork, isn't it, that game. You're sort of pootling around in your little uh, lander, moon lander, type spaceship and trying to figure out the mysteries of this this relatively small set of you know star system or set of planets and yeah uh, and how they all works together and yeah the the clock mechanic plays into that really extraordinary game isn't it
1: it, it also has a little bit of a kinship with the immersive sims that we talked about it it's less Earth. about like active engagement uh with the world you know you're not like stacking boxes and so forth but it but it is a game where you learn a basic set of rules about how physics works and for each little planet yes. you're learning a set of predictable rules and then not so much through manipulating those rules but but through just studying them and gaining knowledge of them you are you're learning to play by those rules yeah. that, and build your own solutions
2: yeah absolutely yeah incredible incredible game
1: yeah and it, it that's incredible one where game. it makes me a little sad that that there's like a little bit of an accessibility barrier. It's like not the easiest game to turn people onto. Yeah. You have to kind of learn this slightly simulation-driven way of navigating with your ship. And you know, once you once you're in the realm of first-person yeah. games, which tend to be my favorite because they they tend to be the most immersive. Not exclusively at all, but um but I do have a preponderance of those games on my favorite list. But once you introduce people to to yeah. that you know twin stick control system it's like automatically you you lose yeah, a chunk right. of the audience
2: yeah i wanted to to ask you quickly you tweeted a little while ago about um your friendship with the composer steven Sondheim, uh, who perhaps most famous for for writing the musical west side story for any listeners who don't know um but you tweeted about how he he loved video games and that you would discuss them with him can you can you just tell us about that relationship how did you first meet and find out that you both loved games you saying
1: Steve Sondheim is most famous for West Side Story is going to get the music theater gaze as mad at you oh, no. as the God of War stands are going to be at me. <laughs> um,
2: well, what would you what would you say? <laughs>
1: oh, oh, oh well, that's that's going to get me into controversy. <laughs> I think I'm a Sweeney Todd guy. Okay, uh, right. he did. He loved video games. He loved puzzles in general. His his <laughs> whole house and act, both of his home, he had a place in Connecticut and a place in New York. Um, They they were both filled with puzzles of every kind, and he would do um, like cryptic crosswords Mm -hmm. all the time, and like wanted to talk about games all the time, wanted to talk about puzzles all the time. He loved Myst, big fan of Myst.
2: You bonded over Myst,
1: yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, right up until like pretty pretty late in his life, we just we talked a ton about video games. I think that kind of stopped a little bit in the last few years, but uh, no, he, he sincerely appreciated game design. I, th- I think much in the the serious way that, that we're talking about it. And, you know, had a, had a background, had studied as a mathematician at at Williams and like had a, a very kind of quantitative um, background as great musicians sometimes do. Just- and, and so I think his appreciation of kind of, puzzles and intricate level design and stuff was probably connected to that.
2: Hey, so did you ever play co-op games with him at all? <laughs> no, I, I never saw Steve play a, a
1: multiplayer game. I don't know that that would have been... His, his partner, Jeff, I think, did some, like, uh, racing game stuff, but no, I think Steve was more of, like a like, a puzzle guy all the way through. and I, I do love the i love puzzle co-op games like it, i love it. um i love the portal games and those are easily those probably should have actually been on my on my top five list right because um, right. those as you can imagine just they mix up all of the different traditions that we're talking <laughs> about like rich exploration incredible art direction and storytelling and just right. you know that i guess it's eric walpaw right was like the main like creative driver yes. of that dialogue yes. i mean
2: I've had him on here. Oh,
1: I can't wait to listen to that. I mean, I love that guy. I think his writing is so great. Um, big fan of what he did in he, he wrote on the first Psychonauts too, I think, right? So
2: great, yeah. Yeah, he did, yeah. It's yeah. just
1: brilliant. I mean, I would love another portal game so much. I guess that's like old hat for Valve fans. <laughs> Everybody wants another portal game.
2: Yeah. I think he, he wants to make another one, but it's Let him do it, Valve. Like too much money doing other things. Yeah, yeah they
1: got real real distracted <laughs> yeah. by uh making money. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't hate making money off Steam,
2: <laughs> but make they make some games occasionally.
1: <laughs> goddamn! But then you know the annoying thing is like they. I actually I haven't played <laughs> Alex yet because I'm like still holding out hope that it comes to PSVR 2. Right. But mm-hmm. uh, but you know the fact that they they do come back and it's like amazing again is well good on them.
2: Bro. Okay. We should. I could talk to you forever, Ronan, But we should better come to your fifth and your final game, which is from uh, a little later in the year that Outer Worlds came out. Can you tell us about this game and why you love it? I think I put Disco Elysium on there.
1: thought it would be a different kind of uh, game design to talk about it it's it's like very very gamey in some ways right it's got this like top-down rpg look and and feel and set of mechanics uh but the the quality of the writing is is just so excellent and and i do i it's similar to what you said about phoenix Wright and the kind of unlocking different layers of conversation with characters, and that may be appealing to my investigative sensibility and my interpersonal sensibility. I, I, I don't know that it always totally succeeds at this mechanically, but Disco Elysium does at times feel like a really interesting experiment in that space of, like, almost combat dialogue. Deus Ex has, has like, toyed with that a little bit, too, over the course of that series. I'm very interested in it. I think, like... It's understandable that a a default kind of first set of interactions that games got built around was the kinetic stuff, the the running and the jumping and the shooting. But I'm really interested anytime a game comes along and is like, okay, now now the basics of how we interact with the world and other um characters or enemies in it is totally different. Like now it's it's dialogue as combat, for instance. And Disco Elysium is just a great showcase for that kind of sensibility because it's so, the writing is so beautiful, you know, the the dialogue is so, so strong and I don't know how they did it, but when they finally did the voice acted version, like the the acting is also so strong and it's like, it's such a rich, unusual world. I know there have been, um, there's been like tumult at at that developer since and who knows what's going to happen sequel wise, but Man, anyone who played an important role in the art direction and writing in that game, like I just want to see whatever they do next.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Phenomenal game. Yeah. So, Ronin, your your perfect console has got Riven, Deus Ex, Bloodborne, Outer Wilds, and Disco Elysium. What it what is this hardware? <laughs> this is a mythical. You can't do those all on one system. <laughs> well, we can now. And then we're gonna need a, a name for this product to bring to the world. Can you give us a name for your console that we can use to market it? Oh my god, this is a pop quiz question. <laughs> what should
1: it be? Oh ah. Uh, it's like, is it is it a is it a Ronin cube? Oh, if we can do better than that. We got a we got a workshop. This. I think that
2: sounds pretty good, Ronin cube. <laughs> I
1: always I always liked the kind of like uh the internal Japanese like working names for for hardware, right? You know, like what what was the game like? <laughs> Well, I guess that was Dolphin, right? It was Dolphin, it was, wasn't it? Wasn't yeah. one of them like Katana? Right.
2: Was that Dreamcast or something? I yeah, they all,
1: they all have such <laughs> such cool working names. Oh, and I do love the absolutely bonkers Sega naming tradition of like Saturn, Genesis. Maybe I'd pick something biblical. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what kind of biblical? That, that's a widespread.
1: Yeah, I know. I got to choose carefully here. Some of it is real bad stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll
1: come back on someday, and I'll have a, yeah, I'll have a robust console name that is not Sega esque that sells better than, okay. than Sega's names.
2: <laughs> well, if you don't, we're releasing the Ronan Cube, so watch out. <laughs> okay, great. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Um, okay, just before I let you go, thank you for being so so generous with your time. I'm interested. Just one last question. We before before we were we were recording, we were just chatting about, I guess the the slight cultural resistance or institutional resistance we both perceived to video games you know notably the new york times still doesn't have a a video game person and i don't know that feels a little strange it feels like an oversight maybe maybe in 30 years they'll think it was why do you think why do you think that is it's you were saying that you don't feel it it's just part of the fact that video games are still quite young because they're not that young anymore so, why, why do you think they still struggle? I, I mean, I think it is both.
1: I think like there there is more appreciation for games as art and as a storytelling medium, and particularly amongst young people, I see you know talented writers and artists going into that space because uh, they grew up loving it, like like we did, and and not just loving it, but also taking it seriously when it merits that. I I, I do think there is a way in which the argument around games as art will always be fraught regardless of how mature the medium is because it it is like it's a toy as well right not everything is shadow of the colossus or like also also, there's tetris and like tetris is great like sometimes that's it's it these are games that uh lay bare the the mechanical gamey nature of the thing uh much more obviously and i i don't turn my nose up at that either i think like A sophisticated understanding of and love for games kind of embraces both and there are social games and there are um, more kind of mechanically simplistic games and then there are there are games that are about story and character and so on and all of those have value i think because of that merger of traits that they do have more elements of of the toy in them and i mean that in a non-pejorative way the conversation is always just going to look different than it does around linear storytelling mediums like like books or or movies
2: yeah yeah there's this that's something harder to see to define there's that quote from frank lance at nyu he says video games are operas made out of bridges which i think encapsulates it quite well
1: oh cool <laughs> i love that image that's yeah, great <laughs> yeah i think that i think that does encapsulate it well and look it's it's one reason why i find video game criticism and commentary uniquely interesting too because it's a it's a more changeable volatile you know uh, unformed space to do talking and thinking and writing in um and and thank you for your contribution
2: to that oh thank you oh well and thank you for this as well you've been such a thoughtful guest and i've absolutely loved hearing all your thoughts on these games so yeah i think people will be surprised at quite how knowledgeable and nerdy you are
1: that i'm an annapurna
2: though
1: (laughs) 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 although did we wind up with only one annapurna game on the list I, I was trying to restrain myself. I mean, you can imagine given my taste. I'm just like, you know, I love Kentucky Root Zero. I <laughs> like all of that stuff. They have great taste, are they, at Annapurna? Big- they really do. Yeah. They really find incredible projects to back. Yeah, they do.
2: Cool. All right. Well, Ronan, thank you. Thank you again. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much, Simon. Take care. Thank you so much to my guest, Ronan Farrow. I uh, I did know that Ronan liked video games very much. I hadn't counted on quite what an expert he would prove to be. Um, really incredible knowledge there. It seems like Ronan has um, spent a lot of his life not only playing video games, but also immersing himself in the culture around them online uh, on forums, on Reddit, on YouTube, you name it. Uh, he seemed to to know all of the. He seemed to know all of the sites to go to, all of the communities, uh, and uh, yeah, just what fantastic knowledge! A warning there, perhaps, to parents who th- say to their children, "You must, um, you must first read Anna Karenina." In the original Russian, before I'm going to buy you a Nintendo Switch, perhaps a warning that if you do that, you're, you're setting your kid up for a lifelong obsession with the illicit world of video games. Although, of course, in no way has it held Ronan back in any way. In fact, uh, judging by some of those conversations, it may even have provided some room for him to explore some of those questioning instincts that he has and that have served him so well in his career to date grateful as well to Ronan for opening up a bit about what it was like to report on what what became a world famous story let's be honest it's uh, a story about which everyone listening to this will probably know and recognize and remember and uh, Ronan played of course an instrumental role in excavating that story and exposing the violence that had gone on in that situation and bringing some of the people involved to justice. You can read, in fact, more about that story in his 2019 book, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators, uh, which is a really, really excellent book. And that followed on from his uh, previous book, which came out the year before, War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence. Uh, So check both of those out. You may have noticed during that chat that Ronan mentioned he had uh, added his voice to a virtual reality game recently. That game is Area Man Lives, uh, directed by Amy Noel Green and Ryan Green, who previously produced the game That Dragon Cancer that uh, I'm sure many of you will be aware of. Uh, Area Man Lives is described as a quirky VR mystery It's uh, available now uh, on Steam and Meta and other devices as well. If you head to the uh, website areamanlives.com, you can read up on that game and you can also listen to Ronan's voicing of the character of a local news reporter. You can also follow Ronan on Twitter and you can see him, of course, on television regularly. Uh, he's a fixture on North American TV sets. Uh, but he's also has programs available on Now TV and other, other services for international listeners to this. You can follow me as well, if you like, on Twitter at Simon Parkin. And you can follow the podcast as well at My Perfect Console with the O's removed at the humble podcast Twitter account. But it's worth following if you would like little previews of which guests are coming up. I release those on a Friday. So if you want a little preview of who next week's guests will be, you can pop along there uh, and and listen to a short clip often. If you would like to support the podcast financially, please go to ACAST Plus, search for My Perfect Console. You'll find it easily. You can become an early access supporter and for just £3, $3 a month, 3 euros, wherever you are, it's around that anyway, you will get episodes 24 hours before the general public and ad free. On that note, if you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast, just drop me a line on My Perfect console at gmail. Okay, I think that's all the admin out of the way. I will be back next week with another guest. There are five games and one more perfect console. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey.